Learn about a brain lift without Botox. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Anjan Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is Professor of Neurology at the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience, University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. To begin with, Dr. Chatterjee, I would wonder if you would please define a term I know you've coined called cosmetic neurology. Uh, Cosmetic neurology refers to uh, medical interventions, which can be of a number of kinds, but I focus primarily on pharmacologic interventions uh, that are used uh, to enhance people's abilities uh, in a setting in which they do not have a disease. Uh, So it places it outside the usual framework that physicians think about, which is treatment of disease. Uh, Here you have individuals that otherwise might be considered normal, uh, and the idea is to try to make them better. Certainly there's questions of safety and distributed justice that would be ethical issues, but I also wonder about the ethical issue of coercion that a pilot has been shown to perform better under certain uses of these drugs, is he then coerced that he must take these drugs? The same might be applied to a policeman or a fireman. Yes, I think there are issues of coercion. You could envision coercion being either implicit or explicit. Uh, By implicit, what I mean is that if you start seeing people all around you taking these medications on the assumption that the medications help, for example, in taking standardized tests, then you might feel pressure to take it because to not take such a medication would be to fall behind. So that would be a sort of implicit coercion that nobody is just coming to you directly and saying you've got to take this stuff, but you feel pressure just to keep up with your neighbors, keep up with the Joneses, and to do that you're going to have to take uh, something uh, to to give you a boost. The explicit uh, coercions can be thought of as in specific situations uh, or specific professions where someone decides that there is a common good involved and that to achieve the common good, that individuals would have to give up some of their individual liberties and be subject to taking these kinds of medications. We do that to some extent in the military, where people willingly choose up to give some of their civil liberties. But you could envision it in other uh, domains, and the examples you give, for example, uh, pilots uh, would certainly be one of those. Could it actually have some role in the medical profession? Yes. One could imagine that we want our physicians to be operating at uh, peak performance. For the general public, this would seem like an important thing. If your loved one, your spouse, your child, your mother, your grandmother is in the hospital, you want to make sure that the physicians taking care of them when they're acutely ill, are on top of their game. It's clear that uh, there are some medications, modafinil comes to mind, that seems to help performance in individuals when they're sleep-deprived. If you follow that logic, you could envision a scenario where post-call residents that have been up most of the night because they've been been taking care of sick patients, they've been admitting patients, they've been in the emergency room most of uh, the night, you know, they still have to work the next day, you know, before their patients are tucked in. Now, with the current regulations, they they tend to leave the hospital earlier than uh, at least when I trained. Uh, However, it still remains that they are in the hospital for a number of hours where they're sleep-deprived. And the question, I think, as you're suggesting, would be, 
should such residents be required to take medications that we think minimizes or, or at least lessens the likelihood that they will make mistakes uh, because of sleep deprivation. So certainly one could envision pressures on hospitals to institute uh, such policies. Is there any evidence, though, that taking these medications, even something like, say, Ritalin or Adderall, uh, used for attention deficit disorder, which is, again, a drug that is supposed to help us focus on a task, might make us focus too much on a particular task? Can we lose our flexibility and our creativeness and our originality? Our mind becomes too cluttered or fixed. And in other words, that these medications may be counterproductive. That's an excellent question and something we've been struggling with. And actually, along with my colleague, Martha Farah, here at the University of Pennsylvania, we have actually started a very small study to try to look at this question and directly what you're talking about, which is, is it the case that uh, being on medications like Ritalin or Adderall actually impairs creativity? There are models of how we think about creativity that suggest there's a very good chance it might, uh, again, for the reasons you say, which is that what those medications do is, is allow, predispose us to a kind of convergent thinking where you stay on task and, uh, and are able to focus and get stuff done. On the other hand, the kind of openness in the psychological jargon gets referred to as divergent thinking or flexible thinking uh, is what, what probably is impaired. So it's, it's entirely possible that there would be an impact on creativity. But it brings up another tangential issue around this, which is that it's very, very hard right now to get funding and to do this kind of work in individuals that don't have a disease. Uh, there aren't agencies that makes it easy to actually test this in normal subjects to answer exactly the kind of question you're talking about is what are the consequences, perhaps in some instances unintended consequences, uh, of taking these medications when people are completely normal or completely without pathology. And we don't really know the answer to that. And it's not obvious to me how at least in the short term, we will know the answer to that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm discussing with Dr. Anjan Chatterjee cosmetic neurology, a new area that physicians are going to have to learn to deal with. Some of the commentators have uh, mentioned that uh, the academic world is not going to be affected by this, that students use it next to cannabis. Apparently, prescription drugs of these nature is the, uh, the second most uh, used medication on campuses. But I'm struck by we've all had to learn to live with publish or perish. And how can the academic world be separated and be above the crowd, so to speak, in dealing with these medications? I think the academic world is probably not above the crowd, uh, as you put it, uh, and th there are several reasons for saying that. One is that uh, there was a, a paper published in Nature, uh, I think it was in December of 2007. It wasn't an empirical paper, but uh, it was people in England making the comment that some of their colleagues uh, at the higher institutions of learning in England, I think in this case it was Oxford, but I'm not in completely sure, informally that a number of their colleagues actually took medications to enhance their abilities to concentrate and remember. Again, this was not any sort of formal survey, but the, the comment was made and actually got a fair amount of publicity that academics are using this. So that's number one. 
Number two is the generation of students, as you say, that are using this secondary only to cannabis uh, will continue to get older and will soon, you know, a good portion of these uh, students will soon be part of the academic uh, workforce as well. And one assumes that a number of them will continue to use those kinds of medications because they've been used to doing that all along in the same way that I still drink coffee, which I started to do when I was in college. The third is, I think you correctly point out that uh, academics are under tremendous pressure. At least it's not just publish or perish at this point. It's even, you know, get your grant funding or perish uh, with the NIH funding rates dropping uh, precipitously in the last couple of years. Those pressures have uh, increased tremendously. So I think academics, uh, whether it's at the university side or medical schools, will face the same kind of competitive pressures of trying to get ahead by any means necessary. And, uh, uh, and I don't think that they will be above the fray. I would imagine there might be some real conflicts or tension. We have seen the history of physical pain not easily resolved. If we go back to in history to when James Simpson first developed ether for pregnancies, this was not something easily accepted. And it wasn't the risk of ether so much, but whether... One, you should intervene with what was called Mother Nature. So you have this concept of the the natural. You have the concept of pain of any sort being a form of punishment, certainly on a religious level. This is frequently something you hear. And you also hear the concept of pain helping in progress, no gain, no pain. And although this is physical – And this has been laid to rest by the humanistic movement that has taken over our country in so many ways or taken over the world in so many ways. One wonders if you interfere with the psychological discomfort, will people really develop empathy for the disadvantaged and the disenfranchised? Um, I think you touch on exactly the kind of issue that uh, that does concern me, uh, and uh, I'd written a paper trying to deal with this uh, that was uh, published for the Dana Foundation for an online journal that they have. In that, I, I tried to draw the same analogy that you mentioned, which is between physical and psychological pain. And the basic argument is that in some ways, the difference between physical and psychological pain matters less to these discussions than the meaning we ascribe to pain. And I touched on the issues that you bring up, which is certain kinds of pain uh, are considered natural. And in thinking about physical pain, childbirth pain uh, is a classic example of something that women have experienced from the beginning of when humans were giving birth to children. And it's only been in the last couple of hundred years that we've had uh, some ability to try to dampen that pain through pharmacologic interventions. You know, pain as punishment, pain as a form of transcendence, these are deeply, deeply rooted in our our culture. And I think psychological pain uh, follows, follows the same trajectory. I think what has happened, if we look at choices that women now make, at least in our culture, for childbirth pain, is that they're kind of all over the place. There are some women that want uh, they're inter- they want their epidurals right away uh, if they have any pain. There are other women that feel very strongly that they want to have a natural childbirth. Uh, and in some ways, uh, I, I suspect this may be this may be telling us how these questions of psychological pain will also play out, where people uh, people will vary across the spectrum how they choose uh, choose to intervene in their own pain. And, and the question, even for people that are uh, 
very uncomfortable with the treatment of, of psychological pain. The question that always comes up is, which pains do you think are worth treating? Which do you think are not worth treating? Uh, and then the secondary question is, who gets to decide? You know, I am intrigued by your answer. I'm thinking back to a book called Listening to Prozac. Uh, in 1993, Peter Kramer's kind of shocking book about how everybody should take Prozac. And as we talk today, I think the question still has not been answered. We're still going to have to deal with how much we want to interfere with introspection, analysis, and understanding of psychological discomfort. I really want to thank Dr. Anjan Chatterjee for joining us today and being our guest. And we've been discussing cosmetic neurology and psychological pain. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with promo code, quote, radio, unquote, and receive six months free streaming for your home and office. Thank you for listening.